Well, good morning, Winchester Baptist Church. Good morning, Winchester Baptist Church. Uh, that's great. I'm glad to be with you all again for the second week in a row as we finish out John chapter 10. Again, I want to take a moment to thank you all as I, as I did last week, but some of you were not here um, for your partnership in the gospel as, uh, as about a group of, about myself and a group of 30 to 40, I don't know how many people are coming yet, um, individuals will soon covenant together at the end of the summer and launch what will be known as Lovettsville Baptist Church, another gospel preaching, gospel believing church, um, spreading the good news of Jesus in very northern Virginia before you go across the Potomac. And so I want to ask for your continued prayers as as we ramp up. Today's significant in the life of, or soon to be life, of Lovettsville Baptist Church, actually, because this afternoon we're actually meeting for our first core team training. I don't know what else to call it, but essentially what that what that means is everybody who's involved in planning on being one of the founding members of Lovettsville Baptist Church, we're going to gather together. We'll do this four times throughout the summer, and we're basically doing this so that we can build unity, get to know one, one another, and prepare ourselves to be a church. So I'll be going over our foundational documents and uh, preparing us to be a church, and so you can pray for us as this is our first meeting this Sunday afternoon. And so please pray for us. There's been groups of us meeting together to get ready for how to take care of children during when we meet together. Uh, there's been groups of us already meeting together, preparing for corporate worship. We've been reading what is the church to do when we gather together and preparing our hearts for that. Um, we're getting equipment ready. And so this summer, we're just getting ramped up and ready to go. And so I'd ask that you'd continue to pray for us as we do that. Also, this past week was significant because my family and I actually moved into our home in Lovettsville. So you can keep us in your prayers. We're excited about that. But we want to love, we want to get to know our neighbors. We want to love the town of Lovettsville well. And so for those of you who have done it though, moving is quite a big deal, isn't it? And which reminds me, I, I don't know Bruno, but you should help Bruno. Okay. Moving's a big deal. Even if you're a single guy, there's uh, but especially closing on a home, there's all the paperwork leading up to it. There's updating your address on all of your accounts, which takes a while. And on top of that, there's moving all of your stuff that you have. But do you know what was at the top of our list when we moved into our new home and, new home and we were getting ready to sleep the first night? We needed to change the locks. Needed to change the locks. Why Why would we want to change the locks? Because the thought of someone whom we don't know having a key, potentially, most likely, to our house is a bit unsettling. At least, at least for us. Maybe you don't feel that way. But we wanted to change the locks. So the other day we changed the locks and now we can sleep better at night. But the reality is there's still so many threats to our safety and security for all of us. For all of us gathered here this morning, for all of us who live in this world, as was mentioned, it's a fallen world that we find ourselves in. Our health fails, economies crash, friends betray us, loved ones pass away. Even we ourselves one day will have to stare death in the face. And even when these things are not happening in our lives... We worry that they will. Anxiety plagues us and steals our security. And we're always changing the locks, aren't we? 
A better diet will fix it, new insurance, New Year's resolutions, etc. We live our lives on a perpetual search for security, but the longer we live, the idea or the thought of absolute security sounds like wishful thinking, perhaps even a myth. It's as if someone has the key no matter how many times we change the locks. But what if there is true security? What if there is absolute security to be found? Something or perhaps someone that even death itself can't tear us away from. And friends, there is. And most of you here this morning, I assume, are Christians, are following Jesus. But perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian. There's true security to be found that even death itself can't separate you from. And for us as Christians, we know this. We know where this is going. But we need to be reminded of this over and over again. Why? Because those threats don't go away to our security. Those fears that we have will come at you when you walk out the door. They'll come at you when you wake up in the morning. They'll be there when you go asleep at night. So we need to be reminded. And John chapter 10, where we find ourselves this morning, points us, security seekers, to Jesus, whose foundations are eternal, and whose love and commitment to his people unwavering. So, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, please look at John chapter 10 with me. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please look at John chapter 10 with me. There's a message for all of us here this morning. And if you are using this pew Bible like I am this morning, you can find that on page 896. So as you're turning to John chapter 10, of course, last week we covered the first half of this chapter, which is all about Jesus's identity. If you were to go back and read John chapter 9, you would see that he healed a blind man. And that chapter ends by this confusion, these questions surrounding who is this man? Some are saying he's possessed by a demon. He's insane. Others are saying, well, how could a man who's insane do these great deeds? Who is Jesus? Well, John chapter 10 tells us that he's the door. He's the shepherd who's come to give life to his people by giving up his own life. But this chapter continues, and so does the confusion around Jesus' identity. But in Jesus' response, where we'll start in verse 22, the confusion fades, and the implications are glorious for those who belong to him. So let's read. John chapter 10, and we'll start out by reading verses 22 through 30. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them. Out of the Father's hand. I and the Father 
are one. So since our message last week, a month has passed. Well, a week has passed for us, but a month has passed from verses 21 through 22. It's the festival of dedication. One of Israel's darkest moments in history was in the year 167 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes, who was king of Syria, overturned the city of Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. He murdered thousands of Jewish people and sent thousands more into slavery. And on top of all of that crushing blow, he offered sacrifices in the temple to the Greek gods. But under the leadership of the hammer, otherwise known as Judas Maccabeus, the Jews revolted and stunningly came out victorious. The temple was recaptured and reconsecrated to God. Every year since the Jewish people celebrate this deliverance for eight consecutive days. Otherwise known as the Feast of Lights, or as we most likely know it, Hanukkah. So it's in this season when Jesus enters the temple and our passage unfolds. And I think as verse 22 starts, you can feel the coldness in the air. John tells us it was winter. He wants us to understand. It's the middle of winter. Maybe you can see the lights glimmering from the houses in Jerusalem, celebrating the deliverance of God's people and the future hope that that holds. But our passage quickly turns hostile. Jesus is surrounded. The Jews, it says in verse 24, gathered around him and said to him, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. In other words, give us a clear answer, Jesus. You can feel the hostility. They're not asking Jesus to sit down for a cup of coffee or a cup of tea and say, Jesus, we have some questions. You're not fitting our category of Messiah. Can you help us think through these questions that we have? No, it's very hostile. Jesus, stop talking to us in metaphors. Stop telling us stories about shepherds and sheep. Tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And if you're not familiar with the scriptures, Messiah is a loaded term. Essentially, ever since the fall that we read about in Genesis chapter 3, because of our sin and our rebellion against God and the curse that we were under, God has promised to undo all the bad things that have been done because of our sin. He's promised to redeem the world. And how he planned and promised to do that is through a figure known as the Messiah. The anointed one is what the word simply means. The promised one. So Jesus, tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the promised one? Are you the one we've been waiting for to find our security, our refuge, our hope? But how Jesus responds, I think, goes much farther than what they were anticipating. And we're plunged into some deep and beautiful and mind-blowing truths about God and his relationship to us, his people. So here's the main idea for us today. This this is a lot, verses 22 through 42, which we'll cover today. And there's probably many sermons that could be preached on this, but here's the main idea for us today, and it's this. The deep longing that we all have for true security is found in Jesus. So we must know who he is and trust him. Let me say that again. The deep longing we all have 
for true security is found in Jesus. So we must know who he is, that's why this passage is here, and trust him, believe him. You'll see that word over and over again in the Gospel of John and in this passage, believe him. So we want to think about this point number one, the never-ending pursuit of security. Point number one, the never-ending pursuit of security. Now, in the first century where we find ourselves today, there was no single understanding of what the Messiah would be like, what this anointed one sent by God to deliver his people. At the same time, there were some common elements that united all the Jews. So there were different ideas about the Messiah, but basically they all agreed at least on these three points. First, they agreed as a Jew that there is one God. There's one God, the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. There's one God. Second, this God, they believed, through the Messiah, will defeat Israel's enemies. So first, all the Jews believed that there's one God. Second, they believed that God would send a Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, to defeat, to crush Israel's enemies. And third, and finally, the law, or the Torah, and the temple were central and vital in all of this. So that's that were the those were the common ideas in the Jewish religion of the first century. Let's be clear here, the people wanted the Messiah. They were eager for this Messiah to show up. They longed for the day when God's people would be truly and forever secure. The problem is Jesus just didn't fit their concept of the Messiah. Jesus talked like he was equal with God. Jesus tells them to pay taxes and love their enemies. And third, Jesus rebukes their teachers of the law and talks about tearing down the temple. It's as if these three core tenets, Jesus is redefining. For Jesus to say yes or no when they ask him this question. Notice, they want a clear answer. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And you can notice in Jesus' response in verse 25 that he doesn't simply say yes or no. Why doesn't, why doesn't he do that? Does Jesus want to confuse us? No. Well, if he would have said yes or no, it wouldn't have actually cleared anything up. Because they're, t- they're using the same term, Messiah, but they have completely different meanings. But what they're really after doesn't seem like a genuine question. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 25. I told you, and you do not believe. It's like a parent to a child who asks the same question over and over again. And perhaps as a parent, sometimes you get frustrated. And what is our response? I already told you. I don't know if Jesus is frustrated or not, but it's clear he's already told them. They'd want a confession to incriminate him, but Jesus says, I've already given you the answer. Now, John has not yet presented Jesus as declaring the words, I am the Christ, except privately to the Samaritan woman. Yet Jesus says here, I've told you. I've already told you. How? How has Jesus already made clear who he is as the Messiah? Well, look at the works, he says, that I do in my Father's name. 
My words are validated by my works. Consider the Gospel of John. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And what happens? He feeds 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Jesus claims, I am the light of the world. What work do you have to back that up, Jesus? You see this man born blind? See! And he sees. Jesus says, he wasn't some cult leader hiding what he believes and he does. Jesus' teaching and miracles were public. It's crystal clear. Many believed. We see this over and over again in the Gospel of John. Jesus says these things and he does these works. And some did not believe, but many do believe. Jesus says, I've been clear, but you've failed to believe. They bear witness about me. In fact... You won't even consider the evidence, Jesus is telling them. It's as if it doesn't matter what Jesus does. It doesn't even matter what Jesus' evidence is. They are so committed to their unbelief. They feel comfort and security in what they already know. And besides, if they confessed, if they actually admitted that Jesus was the Messiah, do you know how much humility that would require? No doubt these Jewish leaders are involved in these conversations. Imagine being a teacher of the law and this guy, this figure, this new rabbi in town is rebuking you, is correcting your misunderstandings of the Torah, of the law of God. What humility that would require to say, yes, you're the Messiah. It feels safe to stick with what they already know. It feels secure. Besides, they would have been kicked out of the synagogue. Just like the man who was healed from his blindness in chapter 9, they kicked him out of the synagogue. Which, in the Jewish world, wasn't just, you can't go to church anymore, but it was the way of life. It was your community, it was your family. But since they were rejecting Jesus, the reality is they will never find the security and the hope that they were looking for in the Messiah. And we're reminded, even in this passage, that life outside of Jesus is a never-ending pursuit of security. We're all searching for security. We're all searching for safety and refuge in this life filled with trials and temptations and hardships. Now, there are many today who are not looking for a Messiah, but all of us want security. Think about how much we talk about security. National security, home security, job security, credit card security. Or we look to our family for security. We look to our our relationships, our health, our wealth. A politician, even. But here's the problem. Life is outside of our control. Family members are taken from us. Relationships fall apart. Our health decays. Wealth can be gone in an instant. And politicians, I don't need to say no more. Everyone and everything that gives you security could be gone tomorrow. And even if all of these never failed you, they don't protect us or secure us from our greatest threat which is our rebellion against God himself, our sin, which places us under his just condemnation. Friend, the greatest threat to security and safety and refuge that we have is not all of these things, although those are true and we need to think about them, but it's our rebellion against God. He made us to know him, to delight in him. And we, because of our sin, we have rebelled against him. We oftentimes think that we know better. 
We think our design is better than his design. And we have rebelled against him and we are under his just condemnation. So how can Jesus help? How can Jesus help? Well, we see this never-ending pursuit of security, but point number two, the never-ending security of Jesus. The never-ending security of Jesus. So if you're searching for security, for refuge, for hope, outside of Jesus, you will not find it, and thus you'll be always and endlessly searching. But in Jesus, we find never-ending security. And it's at this point in the story where you can picture those surrounding Jesus still clinching their fists and smirking in unbelief. But Jesus keeps speaking in verse 26. There's there's at least some pride in their hearts, I imagine. But Jesus is about to tear that down. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. He's showing them their inability to believe like he's previously taught. John chapter 6, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. This stands in sharp contrast to verses 27 and 30. Notice, as we talked about last week, Jesus' followers hear his voice. Jesus knows his people. He knows them. And what do they do? They follow him. This is Christianity 101. Those who follow Christ hear his voice. He knows them and they follow him. But it's here where Jesus is sending us deeper and no doubt these um, opponents of Jesus deeper than they ever thought they would go. Jesus is saying, you want me to speak plainly? Well, here it is. And friends, it's glorious and leaves us in awe and wonder. What he's saying here in these verses 27 through 30, he says salvation is initiated by God. That's what he's reminding us of. Salvation is initiated by God. Security, refuge, it's initiated by God. Notice that Jesus gives eternal life, verse 28. He gives it to you. You know what this means? We don't work for it. We don't earn it. If you're not a Christian here this morning, you can't. You won't be good enough when you stand before God on the last day. You won't be. But for us as Christians, we need to be reminded of this great gospel truth as well. That salvation isn't 90% God and 10% you. It's 100% God. Because even if it was point zero 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 zero, one percent you, you would make it. It's a hundred percent God. That's what he's showing us here. But notice something else. The Father. Why is it all of God? Well, he plunges us into the great doctrine of election. He says, the Father first gives Jesus the sheep. And we have so many questions about this doctrine. We have so many controversies about this doctrine. But Christian, this is the foundation for your assurance in Jesus. Christian, God's love for you and his intention to save you began in eternity past. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain 
that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would have never chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for if I, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. You see what Spurgeon is helping us get at? It's grace. It's grace. Salvation is initiated by God. I give them, Jesus says, eternal life. Because the Father's given them to me. And he's greater than all. But not only is salvation, this act of true security and rescue, initiated by God, we're kept by God. No one, Jesus says, can snatch us out of his hands. And no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. Why? I and the Father are one. Christian, you've got the clinch, the fist of God the Father holding you and God the Son holding you. And we don't see it here in this passage, but elsewhere we learn there's also a third member, a third person of the triune God who sealed you, the Holy Spirit. No one can snatch us out of Jesus' hands. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. So Christian, brothers and sisters, believing, hoping in Jesus, true security or our confidence about life after death is not wishful thinking. It's built on the eternal union of Jesus and the Father from eternity past. We're eternally secure in Jesus Now, what this doesn't mean, because there's so many misunderstandings when we use a phrase like this, what this doesn't mean is that I prayed a prayer or I signed a card, therefore I'm secure without any repentance or any lifestyle change. This doesn't mean you'll know all the specifics or understand everything that God brings your way in this life. This doesn't even mean that you'll never doubt Spurgeon said this, I guess it's a day to quote Spurgeon, I'm sorry. He said, as a believer, you may fall on the ship of faith, but by Jesus Christ, you do not fall off the ship of faith. Friends, we have doubts. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes things don't make sense. But even when things do not make sense, we can trust our good and sovereign God. That's why I love the book of Psalms. One moment, David is praising God, enjoying his presence. The very next chapter, he's asking, where are you? But he clings to him. Salvation is kept from God. Friends, salvation is all from God from beginning to end. As we just see, the father gives the sheep or his people to Jesus. Jesus dies for the sheep. That that rebellion that we have against God, that sin, that just condemnation that we We so deserve because God is so, so, so good that he's completely just and no sin can go unpunished. Jesus took that on himself and anyone who trusts in him and repents of their sins can be forgiven of their sins and find true security in him. But not only that, we're sealed by the spirit. So the Trinity, friends, let's just take a moment and remind ourselves, the Trinity is not just an idea for theology books. 
But every person of the triune God guarantees and secures your salvation. So Christian, follower of Jesus, take a breath. The Father has got you. Christian, take a breath. The Son has got you. And Christian, take another deep breath because the Holy Spirit of God has got you. We moved into our house and they had a security system and it's called Trinity Trinity Security. Well, friends, this is true Trinity Security. Our security in life and death does not rest on our love for God, which is wavering, but on his unwavering love for his people. So if you're here this morning and you're not trusting Jesus or you're listening to this, why not? Why not trust him today? Which brings us to the third and final point, the invitation to Jesus. And we'll see this in 31 through 42, the invitation to Jesus. Let's read those verses. So after Jesus says in verse 30 that I and the Father are one, verse 31 says, So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So we've seen our our never-ending pursuit of security. We've seen the never-ending security that Jesus offers and gives to his people. And there's so much packed in these final verses that perhaps it deserves a sermon in and of itself. But let's try to think through this as the invitation to Jesus. And notice how this story unfolds. The Jews are ready to stone Jesus in verse 31. Obviously, he said something that they didn't like. But look at verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. In verse 38. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. So even these people who are clearly opposed to Jesus, they're ready to stone him. He's still inviting them to see him, to behold him, to see that the works that he are doing are the works of God himself. We even see the mercy of Jesus. It's a continuous invitation. Look at me and believe. The security you have, you think you have in yourself and your own conclusions, let it go and come to me. Now, why were they ready to stone him? 
That's most likely everything he's been saying, but especially what he said in verse 30, I and the Father are one. So they pick up their stones, and Jesus says, not so fast. Tell me, which good works that I've done incriminate me? Was it the man I healed who couldn't walk, maybe Jesus says? Was it, was it the man who was born blind and now he can see? Which one of those are you going to stone me for? In verse 33, they reply to Jesus, No, it's not what you do. It's what you say. You are a man claiming to be God. So it's crystal clear in the eyes of the Jewish leaders and the people surrounding Jesus. Jesus is claiming divinity. He's claiming to be God. For some reason in modern scholarship today, there's this idea that Jesus never claimed to be God. Friends, that's silly. It's silly. Even the Jews of the day understood this is what put Jesus to the cross. He was claiming to be God. The charge was blasphemy. Remember the first core tenet of Judaism? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Do you see what Jesus is saying? I and the Father are one. Hear, O Israel, the Father and I are one. Jesus is speaking plainly. Remember they asked for a clear answer? Well, he's giving it to them. He's one with the Father. And do you see the irony of this all? The Jews are looking at God. They're staring at God and claiming he was only a man. When in reality, this is God himself who has become man. And Jesus, again, he it seems as if he deflects the question in verse 34 because he gives an answer to them. But he's actually using an argument and Some commentators have called this the lesser to the greater argument. So let me explain what Jesus is is doing here. And I, I, I know it's a bit confusing. I think it is, but I think this argument makes sense. Here's what Jesus says to them in verse 34. So Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. So if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God. So Jesus is saying to them, and he's quoting from Psalm 82, based upon your law, you say I'm committing blasphemy. But you must be forgetting something. Your law also describes human beings, judges who rule on behalf of God, And the scripture refers to them as gods. That's what happened. You can go read Psalm 82 this afternoon. And so Jesus is saying, you have a problem with the way I'm using words, but in your own law, the scriptures, which we agree cannot be broken, other beings other than God are referred to as as gods. Now, what Jesus is not saying is, well, since I'm a man like them, I'll take the title too. Here's what he is saying. If humans could have this title in Psalm 82, doesn't it make sense that I, the one set apart, consecrated, and sent by God, should be referred to as the Son of God? 
See, if, if God gave this title to human beings at one point in history, yeah, they're serving as gods in a way. Of course, not like the God. Then doesn't it make sense that I, the one who's been sent by God himself and set apart to save and rescue the world, doesn't it make sense that I should call myself the son of God? And it's interesting because as you read Psalm 82 this afternoon, you'll see that God is in this courtroom and he's speaking to those on earth who are called to make judgments like they are currently doing on Jesus. And God is frustrated by their judgments because they have no understanding like what is happening in this passage. So Jesus ends by calling them to look to the evidence. It's this invitation If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. Verse 37. Jesus is saying, look, look at what I'm I'm doing. Look at what I've done. If it doesn't match the father's, don't believe me. But if I do them, even if you don't believe me right now, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Don't miss what's right in front of you. Don't miss who you're staring at. Believe the works. And friends, believe the works even today that Jesus is still doing. Remaining though, verse 39, remaining secure in their unbelief, they seek to arrest Jesus, but he escapes. And John informs us that he went across the Jordan where John first began baptizing. And there many believed the words. And many in him. Many believed in him there. So what about you this morning, friends? Maybe you need to believe the words and the works of Jesus for the first time. Maybe you need to believe it for the thousandth time over and over again. Because we're all seeking security. We're all seeking refuge. And perhaps the greatest work, the culminating work that Jesus did was not merely healing a blind man was not making a lame man walk. But after Jesus bore our sins on the cross, that he did not deserve our sins. And he lie dead in the grave for three days. He rose again. Do you remember what he said last week in John 10? I have authority to lay down my life, but I have authority to take it up again. Friends, the greatest work of Jesus is that he rose again from the dead. And not only did he rise again from the dead, but he now offers that same life and hope and security to anyone who will trust in him, to anyone who will look at him and see, yes, you truly are the son of God. You truly did die in my place. You truly did rise again. You truly are ascended and ruling and reigning on behalf of your people. And I trust you. That's how John ends this little segment. Many believed the words. So what about you? As the lights were shining all over Jerusalem, this Hanukkah, there was an even brighter light shining And since he refers to John the Baptist here, let's remind ourselves what John told us about John the Baptist earlier in John 1. John came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Jesus was in the world and the world was made through him, 
yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Tragedy. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Friends, the deep longing that we all have for true security is found in Jesus. So believe that he is the son of God and trust him. Believe in him. It was already quoted once, but we need to quote it again. Beneath the shadow of thy throne, thy saints have dwelt secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. God is our help in ages past and our hope for years eternal to come. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we thank you because even though we seek refuge and security and hope in so many places, you sent your son, Jesus, to rescue us from that empty and vain search. And because Jesus bore our sins on the cross and rose again, we too may have life because of our union to Jesus. And so, Father, all of those anxieties and worries or real situations that threaten our security, our joy, our happiness, I pray that we would be reminded of the deep, deep love that you have for us. Not because of anything that we've done, but it's all because of you. May we find true security in Jesus today and for the weeks ahead. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.